cheers to another episode of the Wine Notes Podcast. I'm your guide, AJ Weinzettel, on this journey of stories showcasing the people behind the wonderful world of wine, where we dive into conversations ranging from terroir, viticulture, to favorite music, superpowers, and more. Please enjoy this episode of the Wine Notes Podcast. Allison, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. AJ, thanks for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, you know, it's been interesting to uh, our paths have crossed a couple different times this year. You know, the first time in January at uh, Pinot Fest, and uh, that was in Palm Springs. And then again uh, in July at IPNC here in uh, McMinnville, Oregon. So that's, you know, I, it, that's, I don't know. It's just amazing. So it's, you know, thank you for taking the time. Absolutely. Two beautiful places to meet in, too. Very different. Yeah. Very beautiful yeah. ways. Very very different, very beautiful. I needed to get away from all the rain here in Oregon in January. So Palm Springs was the perfect place to get away to. That's exactly what we should be doing. That's a good time of year to go to Palm Springs too. You know, it's, you don't want to be there in summer. It's too hot. Oh, yes, most definitely. Uh, did you go to any other uh, wine festivals this year? Yeah, I did. I had a great circuit. I went to, um, also I went to World of Pinot in Goleta, oh. right next to Santa Barbara there as well. And um, I brought my husband with me on that trip. So we took a couple days ahead of time to go explore Santa, Santa Barbara wine country uh, mm -hmm. before we hit the wine festival too. So uh, we went uh, we went out to Dragonette Wines, for example, which are some wines that I admire and tasted there and just enjoyed the countryside in the Santa Ynez Valley. And then um, at World of Pinot, attended a, a couple of really great seminars there. And then, of course, we participated in the Grand Tasting, which always has just a great following. Yes, yes, most definitely. I wanted to get to that, but I just I, I couldn't get to World of Pinot this year. Yeah. So you grew up in the Willamette Valley. That's right. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what? I'm curious. Did wine? Uh, what, so what did... I don't know. What was Oregon wine to you as you were growing up? That was my first introduction to American winemaking, really. Um, I think if I hadn't have moved to Oregon when I was 15, um, I was living, I, I was born in the Washington, D.C. metro area. Um, my dad took early retirement from the government and um, my grandparents, my great grandparents had actually homesteaded out in Oregon. That's where my dad was from. And so we as a family decided to move back there and settled on the Willamette Valley is just a really beautiful place to live. Uh, we bought a farm with nine acres, you know, so we came from the city and then moved to a farm. And um, of course, I was a high schooler. But uh, as I got older and started, I went to college in the Northwest, too. I started getting more interested in the agriculture that was going around there and winemaking in particular and got my feet wet with a couple summer jobs in winemaking. And that's where I started to catch the bug that that could be a really cool um, thing to do with my life. Yeah. That, that is pretty amazing. Yeah. The, um, and, and your wife, or I'm sorry, your mother was uh, an accomplished, you know, artist. And, uh, you know, you, you've said, you know, I grew up in a creative household and I've always viewed the world through an artistic eye. I draw, mm -hmm. paint, and make prints. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, to me, another very artistic winemaker here in the, uh, here in Oregon is Maggie Harrison from Antigua Terra. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, do, you, do you know much about her or, you know, and what she does? 
Yeah, um, she is a winemaker that I really admire. I, uh, you know, first tasted the wines and was just fascinated with, um, you know, what she was getting out of grapes from Oregon and then started to learn more about her too. And she really is a really unique example of someone, um, uh, you know, you hear a lot about the art of winemaking and I think her background resonates a lot with me and my background of growing up and having been exposed uh, to art from an early age. And really, you know, I've been trained in it, you know, as, as a kid, you know, we playing, it was almost like games um, doing art. And my mom would do these sensory exercises with us where we'd, um, you know, you, you, you would draw, you would, we would hide an object and then you mm -hmm. have to like draw it just by touch or we would paint music, um, things like this. And so I had a lot of training in different art techniques, um, just uh, growing up with the joy of sensory experience and expression, and also just being surrounded by amazing art books, going to art shows all the time. So I think that's something that's just really unique about my upbringing and that's just part of who I am. I married an artist too. My husband is a painter. It's, it's a way of looking at the world. And right. I think it's a really, um, I think it's a really interesting way to approach the world of making wine too, because it's the, it's a limited sensory world of smell and taste. Um, so it's, it's a cool palette to work with. I, I can only imagine. Uh, and, and I'm just sitting here thinking, uh, you know, just kind of your upbringing and how how did you end up going to to california from from oregon i mean i, I mean I'm, I'm partial to oregon myself and it <laughs> near and dear to my heart so i'm like oh that's a good question um i love the wines from oregon and actually one of the favorite wines that we make here at hall we make one oregon pinot from shea vineyard under our wall label and it's absolutely one of my favorite wines um but Culturally, I, I became a Californian. Um, I actually, to get my toe in the business, I, I finished my degree in biology and I still wasn't sure what I wanted to do um, with my life and my career as a young person and um, was, was remembering back to my days in McMinnville of all the inspiring interns and winemakers I had met there. And, um, but also I had spent a total of eight years in the Northwest four going to high school in Oregon and then another four going to college in Puget Sound in Washington. And I always said I liked fog, but the great days started to get to me. I mean, <laughs> you, you got nine months of gray and rain up there. Yeah. So I, you know, in college, I would come to visit California. I'd always been fascinated by the place. And so this is where I actually landed um, to kind of test the waters for winemaking. I got an internship at Etude Wines in the Carneros here in the Napa Valley, and it was Tony Soder's last year. Um, he had just sold the brand to Foster's Wine Group, but he was still involved. So there's another little Oregon connection there, too. Or Oregon's always going to be part of my winemaking journey. Yes, um, yeah. So I, I came to kind of see what what it was like to see if I liked it, um, and I I caught the bug for sure after that first internship. I, I can only imagine. I have, uh, you know, when, when and once you get that bug, it's it's there. And people who don't get the bug, they don't. To me, they don't. It's like they don't get it. And like 
but man, once they get it, they're just, they go down that rabbit hole so quickly. It's an obsession. Absolutely. Yep. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. Uh, so before we started recording, uh, you had poured yourself a, a glass of wine and what, what was that again? I did. Um, so I poured myself a glass of wine. Um, this is one wine that really I was excited about, um, that I've been working with this vineyard called Black Sears Vineyard. This is mm -hmm. a Zinfandel from um, a really special culty vineyard up on Howell Mountain, um, which is actually where my home is too. So this is at high elevation for Napa Valley, which is 2,400 feet above sea level. And it's this really special vineyard that the Sears family bought back in the 70s and had been neglected. And they have this really beautiful connection to the land. They rehabilitated the vineyard. It's, it's surrounded by native forests. So you get this amazing influence of the native flora that's around the vineyard too. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's a tricky site. You know, um, I started making Zin in 2016 and it, it's a challenging grape. So I was just really honored to be able to work with such special fruit. It, you know, Zin has a tendency to get really ripe really fast. Um, it's hard to make that call on when it's perfectly ready to pick. Um, but it, the soils up there are these beautiful volcanic red soils. Um, and so this is, this is the 2019, so 1670. Right. This is my fourth year making it. And I called, I called the pick just a little earlier that year, you know, instead of like pushing it as far as I could into those really juicy brambly berry fruits, I practiced a little more restraint on this vineyard. And I was just really excited how savory the wine became. And I got these beautiful aromatics. It's almost like an incense of sage and bay from, from the native forest around there and like the black peppers just popping. So I just wanted to pour this one as, as a wine that I'm like personally excited about my journey making this one. Oh yeah, I, and I can imagine. And when when you when I hear Zin being on a uh, on a you know vineyard that's you know you said like twenty three or twenty five hundred feet in elevation, it just blows my mind that like wow, it can you know Zin can actually get that ripened uh, or, or ripened that high in elevation. But uh, I, I can only imagine how special that is. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I can definitely ripen at that elevation. It's a really adaptable grape. I, I would say it's one of the most adaptable to the different climates in California. So it's been fun to work with. Wow. And so that was from the, the Zen. Oh, so you, you have Paul, Walt and Baca and I, and I'm trying to get my head around all three of them. Which Great. one was this Zin from? That was the... Yeah, we'll back it up. This is a brand. Um, this is our most recent brand. So I make three different brands of wine. Um, this okay. is a brand that launched in 2018, and it's called Baca. Um, it's Latin for berry. Um, all of our brands, uh, Hall, Walt, and Baca are four-letter names. Um, and this is a brand that's focusing on um, the beauty of Zinfandel across California. And so we're really excited to get back to you know, the heritage of winemaking in California with this project um, and also work with some uh, old vines, which is something that's really unique about Zin as opposed to Cab or Pinot, which are two of our other specialties. Right. Wow. Yeah. That's, that is amazing. So for Walt, 
wines. What is what? What do you all specialize and focus on for for Walt? I like this. We're going backwards. So Baca was our most recent. <laughs> Um, our first, so, so the first vintage for Baca was 2016, and then it gets released two years later, right? Right. And so for Walt, our first vintage was 2010, um, and that was uh, a really interesting time. Um, you know, we were already making Hall wines, of course, and um, Craig and Catherine Hall were interested in expanding the brand and had an opportunity to to buy a Pinot brand. Um, Rustler, if you've heard, heard of that one, was for sale. And, right. uh, and so we, we bought Rustler and then ended up uh, making the more difficult and more expensive decision to rebrand it under our own name, uh, Walt. Oh. But what was really value about it, valuable about it was um, it came with this incredible portfolio of vineyards, including Shea Vineyard, uh, across the whole Pacific coast. And so that has what is what remains is what's special about our, our Walt portfolio. Okay. So I'm curious, I don't know many winemakers that, you know, actually produce an Oregon Pinot and a California Pinot. Mm -hmm. uh, is there any difference from a winemaking standard? I, I, I know that you want to sh showcase a vineyard and express a vineyard, but you know, when you have, both of them side by side. Is there any difference, you know, that, that any different considerations that you take, you know, for the actual winemaking process? That's a great question. Um, and I think what illustrated that for me the best um, was uh, an annual dinner that Dick Shea throws for all of the producers that make wine from his vineyard. It's over 20 different producers that make wine there. And um, we, we, a group of us winemakers got together, we all brought a bottle of our wine and then we started tasting them blind flights. You know, mm -hmm. this is all the same vineyard, but different winemakers making them. And, um, I knew immediately which one was ours. It was pretty clear, um, because we really just let the grapes speak for themselves. We're not trying to, uh, you know, intensify, make it richer in any way. Um, we're not trying to over manipulate it. We uh, really value this wine as one of our most ethereal wines in our portfolio. And I think that uh, purity just really shines through in our approach to making the Shea. And then as you get into California, you start getting some more, um, some weightier expressions of Pinot. So I, I really love the differences you can find as you as you travel across the coastline in our lineup right. in the, and in our approach in that way. Yeah, no, that that's that is very cool. The I reached out to uh, Owen Bargreen uh, right before the interview, you know, a few days ago because I think he just you know uh, went through your wines as well. And I you know I said you know do you have any questions for Allison? And you know he didn't he didn't give me any questions, which I was like ah, oh. but he asked. <laughs> He asked me if I had tasted the, the Shea Pinot, and I was like, no, I, I haven't. He's like, you've got to taste it. It's absolutely mm -hmm. beautiful. It's gorgeous. You got to get your hands on a bottle. Yeah. So there, that, that one went down in the little checklist of bottles that I got <laughs> to get my hands on. You got to. You got to. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I heard somewhere that you use like a, a chili roaster for, for stems. Stems, stems are cool. Stems are cool in the, in the world of Pinot. Um, I did send you a bottle of Pinot that has um, stem inclusion in the whole cluster manner. I sent you um, 
a Santa Rita Hills Pinot, which is another one I'm excited about. But um, stem roasting um, is a great topic. That's something that's, uh, we use a really unique technique here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess uh, I can, I for our viewers who might not, you know, be as wine dorky as you and I about what, what this all is. I think I'll like explain some background. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yes, yes, please, please, please do. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, you know, with Pinot Noir, um, there's a technique that we use sometimes as we actually include the stem in the fermentation rather than um, just removing all the berries and just fermenting the berries alone. And this does two things for the wine. Um, it builds the, it, it adds some structure, some beautiful like tension to the tannin of the wine. And it also adds um, some aromatics, it can add a spiciness. You can get like cardamom and juniper and other really interesting aromatics that come from the stems. Um, the most common way to include them is, is the simplest and the most direct. Like you take, what we do is we'll take a percentage, usually anywhere from five to 20%. And we will just um, chuck the whole cluster into the tank first. Mm-hmm. So yeah, just an intact cluster. And then on top of that, we'll put the destemmed fruit and then we'll ferment it in that way. So I do like the um, the elegance of the simplicity of that method, um, mm-hmm. but the stem is uh, only ripened as much as it had time on the vine. And when I make a decision about doing that, uh, I actually have started. It's it's a visual. It's looking at at the vine and and like the greenness of the stem. But once we receive the fruit, I also actually I'll, I'll taste the fruit, but I'll taste the stem too to see like are these flavors that I think that could enhance the wine or do I want to leave that out? Um, And so um, winemakers over the years uh, have tried different methods for advancing the development and the ripeness of the stem too. And so there's like one of the most basic techniques you can do is after you've removed the berries, you can lay the stems out in the sun on a sheet and bake them a little bit in the sun. And what you're doing in that process is is you're actually literally cooking out some of the harsher green flavors and, and getting some development. It's almost like um, in my cooking, I've started toasting, dry toasting my spices before I grind them yeah. to a dish. Um, it really brings out a very the next level of just um, sophistication in, in the aroma. Yeah. Um, and so we um, came across a technique. It was actually our... Um, VP of winemaking, Megan Gunderson, had the idea to buy a chili roaster from New Mexico. These things are used to roast their gorgeous green hatch chilies down there. I also happen to be a huge hatch chili fan. Um, <laughs> this never had hatch chilies touch it. I don't think I would enjoy the flavor of chili in my wine. <laughs> this is no, purely no the wine stems. <laughs> um, and so what it is, it's it's a it's a metal, it's a round, it's a cylinder a cage, and then you can rotate it over a bank of uh, propane flames. And so um, it took some some trial and error on, on like the technique of how exactly we wanted to roast or cook our stems. Um, some of the first batches I worked with got a little too charred, and I was trying to take them out of the basket and put them in the tank, and my hands were just black. <laughs> with the star and that wasn't the way to go so we've developed a great method where they just become pliable they become just a little they lose their bright green color just become a little more browned 
But the real test is when you pick up a bunch and smell it, uh, it's got this, I don't know, this paprika, this spice to it that's just kind of intoxicating. So we'll take that and then we'll add that to the tank. Um, and then we'll start the fermentation to integrate that flavor. So I, just from that, I have two questions and hopefully I remember the, the second one. Uh, how, like what mastermind, I, I know that you, you know, said who had the idea, but like, how did that idea even come about? It was like, Ooh, let's try this. It kind of came out of, um, an idea like, well, maybe we can use a barbecue, <laughs> but you can't really get enough stems on a barbecue. So, um, I'd have to right. ask Megan exactly like how, like she knew about the chili roasters and, and got to that inspiration. But, um, it's something that we, um, really enjoy doing and we do exclusively on our fruit that's coming from the Anderson Valley, um, a Pinot, Pinot Noir from Anderson Valley. There's a certain earthiness to it that I think it brings out a savoriness in the wine that, that we really like. That, that would be nice. And I was getting ready to ask, which wine do you do this to? So I was just curious. Yes. Yeah, that's the one. So look for either our, uh, they're called the Corners or the Blue Jay bottlings from Anderson Valley. And those are the ones that have the roasted, roasted stems. Okay, very nice. So I, I want to back up just a little bit. We talked about Baca, we talked about uh, Walt, but we haven't talked about Hall. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit about Hall. Absolutely. Well, um, I really like your background. Um, we're both so you're in Oregon, but I'm here at Hall Wines. Um, but in your background, you've got a beautiful shot of our vineyards and of our famous sculpture called the uh, Bunny Foo Foo. Um, and so Hall is a company that started in, in the mid-90s. by It's owned by Craig and Catherine Hall, um, who met in Dallas, Texas, actually, when Catherine Hall is really the, the face and the lifeblood of this brand. Um, and it was... She grew up with wines in, in Mendocino. Her family had a vineyard, uh, her family collected wines. Um, and so after she met her husband, Craig in Dallas, um, they knew that they wanted to uh, make that part of their lives. And, and she, I'm rambling a little bit, but she also had this incredible career um, uh, as a lawyer. She was running for mayor of Dallas. And then she got this incredible opportunity to be ambassador to Austria uh, during the Clinton administration. So um, she has a worldwide career in that way. And so when they got back from uh, working in Austria is when they wanted to settle and, and start a wine brand. And um, I came into the Hall family at a really interesting time in their trajectory. So this was back in 2008. Uh, I had just started on my career of being a winemaker and they were in the papers for uh, building a new winery in St. Helena. And they were working with Frank Geary, the architect on the designs, mm -hmm. which was like, okay, wow, that's, that's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. well, someone who likes art. I'm like, okay, that's, that's speaking to me. Um, and so, uh, you know, I was, I was early in my career. They had a posting for an enologist, which is the person who, who runs the laboratory and runs the quality control on the wines, uh, runs a lot of analysis that backs up what the winemakers are, uh, are tasting to help that decision-making process. So that was a, 
that was a job that I was hired for in 2008. And um, I got to, the, so I, it's been a really cool journey for me with Hall because I got here at a point when they were transitioning into um, their next phase. They had bought what used to be a co-op winery in St. Helena. So it's a very big property. There were some very buildings that were, were getting older that needed some TLC, um, big old tank farms that were outside, um, but also really precious things on the property. Like there's an original building here, an original winery, excuse me, original winery from the 1880s, this beautiful wow. stone building that was kind of buried under all of this um, wine co-op stuff. Um, it was this treasure. And so it was fascinating for me to see um, the change and the development of the property. And now here I am sitting in this very contemporary, beautiful tasting room. We have gorgeous gardens here. Um, and, and since I started in 2008 as well, um, we've also been developing our portfolio of cabs that we make. We started with some core vineyards, like the Sacroche Vineyard has always been a part of Hall Wines. Um, that's one of the original vineyards they started with. Um, that's the first vineyard we earned our 100-point score from Robert Parker on. Um, but since then, we've had some amazing growth, and we've been seeking out some of the best vineyards across Napa Valley. Across, you know, there's, there's 16 sub-AVAs in Napa Valley. We're in 13 of those, and we've got some just, you know, incredible mountain sites that we're working with now. So, um I get to make uh, wines from Howell Mountain to Diamond Mountain, Stag's Leap, uh, Mount Beater. Uh, so it's 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 been an incredible journey with Hall Wines. It sounds like I, I can only imagine, you know, being able to have the opportunity to work with all those different vineyards and and to see everything, you know, throughout California like that. That's that's gorgeous. Uh, before we started recording. You mentioned it, you know, uh, you're just starting harvest. Um, so for Oregon, it's been a weird, a weird vintage. Uh, spring started late, you know, so, you know, we didn't get uh, bud break until late. But then the time between uh, bud break and flowering, it was just like, boom, record time. And, uh, you know, we're starting to, to pick for sparkling. Yeah, I, I think people started picking last week. Uh, and in what I hear on this side of the fence in California, you know, we just hear blanket stuff, you know, with, you've had a lot of rain and it's just been kind of a, a weird, a weird vintage for you so far. Is that kind of, does that kind of follow the general? Yeah, it's a little, it's a little topsy turvy. Um, we just brought in, we're really excited. We just brought in, uh, our first grapes yesterday, um, Sauvignon Blanc from, uh, Pope Valley, which is, on the eastern side here of the Napa Valley, and it has warm days and cool nights that are perfect for for SB. So we and and several other people in the valley um, started picking their Sauvignon Blanc yesterday. Um, and yeah, what I mean by topsy turvy is, I mean I I'm excited for this vintage. I'm excited to see what the grapes are going to tell us this year, because they've actually had the grapes have had a great great season. Um, we are very excited because we had a wet winter here in California, a very wet winter. We had something like 12 atmospheric rivers come through and a few bomb cyclones. Um, we got over 40 inches of rain this season. And so 
this is coming off, you know, I've been making wine under drought conditions for years now. Um, and so the vines got this good long drink this winter. I mean, the canopies look fantastic. These are healthy vines. Um, but on the flip side, the other thing that happened, it was, it was also cooler this season. So we are anywhere from some grapes are on time, but some grapes are going to be three weeks to four weeks later than when we'd normally oh. be harvesting them. So <laughs> one thing I've learned is not to make any assumptions, but um, it was nice to get, um, you know, a little rest in, a little more rest in before this whole circus starts with making the wines this year. Um, I'm glad. That's true. <laughs> yeah, I, I can only imagine, but like, wow, three to four weeks later, I mean, it's, uh, you know, you know, from my perspective, you know, California is always like, boom, 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 boom. You know, we know when things are going to go off because the weather is pretty predictable and everything. So mm -hmm. I'm very curious to see how the, the 23 vintage, you know, turns out for, you know, for you all. It's interesting. Same. And, and it's funny, you know, working with fruit in Oregon too, um, you know, that's a, that's a fair distance north from where we're working now. And the weather can be so different between the two places as well. So right now, like last year was a very late year for Oregon. We were picking in October and now we just got our first um, bricks numbers, our sugar readings from Shea Vineyard and their the highest one was 21 bricks. So <laughs> we're going to be flying up to Oregon soon to go taste those grapes. And looks like they're going to be coming in earlier this year. Which is great yeah. because um, Sonoma is a little scary right now. It's still finishing up for Asian, which is, you know, the grapes turning from green to purple. Um, and that's that's late this year. Those grapes are going to come in much later. So Sonoma is where we have the bulk of our um, Walt program, a lot of fruit for the Walt program, and also some Baca out there, too. So we'll wow. see. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it'll be interesting on both sides of the fence to see how it yeah. turns out. Mm-hmm. Um, so at IPNC, uh, Carlo Mondavi was there, you know, with his label and also talking about Monarch Tracker Tractor. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I started doing a little bit of research in the Mondavi family and, you know, it's, there, there's a lot to dive into. Uh, but I noticed on your Instagram feed that it looked like that you read the, the book, The House of Mondavi. Oh yeah, I did. Yeah. That was a few years ago. Um, I was I was on vacation in Venice Beach and, and took it for my pleasure reading down there. Um, it is a great story. I, I highly recommend the House of Mondavi. Okay. I mean, yeah. No. It's it's on my list, and <laughs> I'm you know it, you know I don't know about you, but I have you know I just keep adding books to my list, and yes, I make some progress, but not not a whole bunch. Yeah. It's they're a good family too. I've I've um, met Carlo a few times. I made sure to. Um, get a ride on the Monarch tractor when I was out there at IPNC. Uh, I'm really uh, excited for that project. I, I, I'm, I'm just proud of them. I think that's so amazing that they're pushing that direction. Um, and, uh, you know, I'd, I'd love to get one for us here, push, pushing for that. We'll see. Um, yeah. I think it's great technology. I think that's a great use of his fame too. You know, that's a very well-known family. Um, and he's also, I love his um, wines, his rain brand mm -hmm. out there on the, the Sonoma coast. I think they're 
beautiful, delicate wines that he's making. Yeah. It, it's a good family. I actually have gotten to know um, his sister as well um, as, as friends in the Valley. So they're cool folks. Very cool. Uh, I am trying to get Carlo on, on the podcast. So if you were to, you know, have like a question to stump him on or something, what, what question would you ask him? Well, that's an interesting, that's an interesting one. Uh, I know he loves talking about his tractors <laughs> and that's one of his, his favorite topics. Um, yeah, maybe I'd ask him about the new, uh, like, um, the true Sonoma coast AVA and his, and his thoughts on that. Okay. All right. Yeah. That would be great. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, also on your Instagram, you have the, the saying proven millennial, proving millennials can make wine, not just drink it. What, uh, what inspired you to make like that statement? I mean, it's mm -hmm. number one, it's a great statement Two, <laughs> I totally believe it. Uh, three, I know a lot of younger, uh, winemakers that are just absolutely kicking ass. Mm. Um, obviously you're doing the same. So what, what brought the inspiration to like, make, make that statement? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, at this point I'm, I'm an elder millennial, so I'm not, not feeling as quite the young chicken, um, when I first read that statement, but you know, I, one thing that I've always, um, dealt with in my career is, is I look very young and, you know, that's, that's a great thing, but sometimes people are surprised like, Oh, you're the winemaker. You look, what did you start when you were 12? Like, and somehow everyone always come, everyone comes up with the number 12, <laughs> which that's is like, strange. I take it as a compliment, but I'm like, no, I'm serious. I'm a serious winemaker. Um, but I, so that was kind of my way of embracing that too. Like, Hey, like, the next generation is, is coming. And, and there's a lot of marketing too out there. A lot of talk in wine. You're like, how are we going to, how are we going to sell wines to the millennials, you know, coming off the boomer generation? So I'm like, Hey, um, you know, I'm buying it, but I can make it too. And let me help you make wines that other millennials are going to like. That is perfect. <laughs> Earlier you mentioned that you, uh, you know, have that your house is on Howell Mountain. You have like a little bit over over an acre, and uh, you mentioned that your husband is an artist, but he's also, I think, a landscape designer, right? Yes, good memory. Uh, so I'm curious, what projects? Because I know you like to get outside and you know work in the work in the yard. What projects have you all accomplished this year or over the summer? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, I, that's one of my true joys is. Um, being out in the, in the, in the yard, working the soil, um, watching things grow. It doesn't always work. There's a lot of as many failures as successes. Um, we had a big challenge this year. Um, you know, we were just, you know, we've always, we've been rehabilitating our own yard. It was very overgrown when we bought it. It's a combination of forest and uh, I have a vegetable garden and we have um, some ornamental landscaping that we've been working on to, like terracing it all by hand, the two of us for the most part. And this winter we had this crazy snowstorm come through. This was only in the higher altitudes here in Napa mm -hmm. Valley. And they were calling it snowmageddon. <laughs> we got 14 inches of snow. Um, Holy cow. Really, it'll sprinkle, but not stick. So it just dumped. And um, it's beautiful, but the problem with that is the trees in this area just 
aren't designed to handle it. You know, back on the East Coast, trees are deciduous and they lose their leaves. Um, and, and then um, when they get snows in winter, there's not a problem. But here in California, a lot of our trees, um, like live oaks, for example, keep their leaves year round. And so that created these surfaces for this very heavy, wet snow to land on. And I don't think there was a single tree that wasn't damaged on that mountain in some way. Some trees just completely just uprooted and fell over. Um, a lot of branches were lost. So when I when I saw the snow, I just saw a lot of work. We've I've never thought I'd spent so much money on on taking care of our trees, but um, it, it is important to me, and it is um, a source of joy in my life. And um, so we, we've been able to, we had some friends come over and help us clean up right away because another really important thing is uh, there's, there's a real fire risk. We live in a very high fire danger area and you don't want that debris on the ground either. So it was, you know, it was a combination of cleanup and then trying to save trees and trying to prune them back to, to keep them healthy. So we had kind of an exciting garden year this year. Plus the rain. I've never seen so many new wildflowers before. We had a super bloom here and it just lasted and lasted. Flowers I'd never seen. It was, it was beautiful. So hopefully next spring, you know, you'll be able to do a couple more things out in the yard and it won't mm -hmm. be as, uh, as crazy. Mm -hmm. So. I, I know that, you know, you're a Game of Thrones fan and you also liked uh, Good Omens, but, you know, after harvest, I'm sure you just want to, you know, kind of veg or whatever. So what's, what's on your binge list after harvest? Well, I think the easier question for me right now is what I'm listening to right now and watching. There's, there's, that's a cool question. Um, so I started watching a really good show called For All Mankind. It's on Apple TV and it's it's um, kind of an alternate reality um, based on um, this the original space race between the United States and Russia. I don't know. Have you seen yeah, that yeah. one? Have you seen, heard about it? I've definitely heard about it, and I've watched some, and I, I got to dive back into it. I I got sucked in um, because I I do like uh, my fair share of uh, reading sci-fi too, and uh, the science behind going to space and flight and everything. And so um, I've been watching that show and then I've just started, I like to listen to audiobooks on my commute and, and long drives to, to different vineyards. And so there's a related book that was written, I think in the late seventies called The Right Stuff. And um, I hadn't read it before. And it, it really informs everything that's going on in this show that I got sucked into and explains the mentality behind these, these hotshots, these, these test pilots that are willing to strap themselves to a rocket that may or may not blow up to, to get to space or to try a new space shuttle. So it's, it's been just a fascinating story about this, you know, mentality behind that. Um, and so it, it's been, to me, that's been like an exciting way to to like all this build up for the harvest that's coming, because um, there's there's a lot of anticipation on our end too, and we've got some long, a couple long months ahead of us of work. So it's nothing like you know breaking the sound barrier or flying jets or going to space. But <laughs> it's definitely yeah. pumping me up um, to go into harvest. Yeah, 
I, I can only imagine. So yeah, that and the the right stuff. I think that that they also did a, a movie on that as well. So yeah, mm-hmm. I'm gonna watch that yeah. next after I'm done with the book. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um. So on some TV, I was watching a tasting between two people, and they brought up a book called uh, Napa Valley Then and that, Then and Now. Mm-hmm. And they were talking about you know how in the older days of Napa and the community and. Uh, you know, how it was and how it's a little bit different now. I I know the Oregon wine community and I know everybody's, you know, you know, sticking together and helping each other out from, from your perspective, what is the, what is the California wine community like? Well, I haven't read that book, um, but the California wine community on the, on the winemaker level, I would say is pretty collaborative um, because we all, like when we get together, there's, there's nothing else we talk about than wine. Like we just instantly start nerding out and um, we all have um, networks of people that we can call on if we're noodling on an idea or troubleshooting a problem. You know, I pick up the phone and call other winemakers in the area. Um, And that's something that, that's the first thing I did when I started making that Zinfandel brand too, is to reach out and create this support network. So my experience here has has been very good in the industry. That's good. I'm I'm glad to hear that. That's, it, you know, I always I've been comparing Oregon and California. You know, during our whole talk here, and it, it, when you come from an Oregon perspective, there, you know, it's like Oregon or California is our big brother, and we're trying to to <laughs> you know step out of that shadow. And it, but it's so heartwarming to hear you know, that the community is very strong and, you know, the winemakers help out one another. And I, I really like that. That's, that's amazing. I think so. At the essence, people come together. Yeah. There's yeah. definitely rivalries. There's plenty of stories, I'm sure. Rivalries oh, yeah. between Sonoma, Napa. And I, I do feel very spoiled here. I mean, Napa Valley is the heart of the wine industry in the U.S. I mean, the the tools and the resources I have just at the snap of my fingers are just crazy. You know, I went to, um, I had the privilege of going to visit um, a winemaking region in Mexico, actually, a few years ago, the Valle de Guadalupe down there. And it, that really it struck home, you know, how lucky I am to have all of these resources here, the laboratories, the, the equipment, uh, the supplies, and the, the knowledge um, right. that other people, um, you know, making, making beautiful wines don't, don't quite have, aren't, aren't as spoiled by. Um. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But I also, it, it, I'm like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's nice to have all those resources available and, uh, and just, and just make things happen. I interviewed a guy last summer that, uh, started the, um, wines in Bhutan, oh. you know, so he, wrote the business plan and, you know, planted a bunch of grapes, you know, multiple years ago. And this was their first harvest, you know, just about a month ago. And so it's, you know, he's like, how many times do you actually get to write the, the laws for the, you know, for wine, for a, for a country, which, you know, he, he did. And, uh, the resources that he has is like next to nothing. And, you know, just, 
a totally different set of obstacles to overcome and everything. He, he was telling me about a story that the vineyard manager uh, sent him a text and it's like, Hey, we have deer in the, in, you know, in the vineyard. How do we get them out? And he's like, well, put up a fence. Well, high, how high of a fence? And he's like, well, 10 feet. And he's like that high. And he's like, yeah, deer can jump that high. And so like weeks went by back and forth arguing. And finally he's asked the vineyard manager, he's like, how big are these deer? And he's like, well, just a couple feet. I mean, they're, they're not that big. And he's like, Oh, seriously. You know, so, I mean, just our, what we think of deer and what they think of deer, it was, you know, is we all have our own obstacles. That's, that's exciting though. I think that's always at the spirit of winemaking, like being able to be on the frontier um, and, and figuring it out for the first time. There's, there's a real great energy to that um, as opposed to a place that's very, very established and might um, be harder to change course when needed, you know? Yeah. 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 Well, I have some rapid fire questions for you and then I'll get you out of here. Okay. Okay. Uh, favorite artist to listen, listen to during harvest. Brian Eno. Okay. Uh, your favorite indulgent food. Ooh. Um, <laughs> there's so many, <laughs> there are so many, um, um, Gougeres. Okay. I, I, will, I, I have to back. Yeah. Cheesy Cheese. poofs. Oh. Okay. <laughs> it's um, cheesy poofs. <laughs> okay. No, thank you. I had never heard of it. Um, if you could choose a superpower, what would it be? Mm, to see. Uh, yeah. It would be, it would be sensory related, I think. Um, to be able to see through things. Ooh, okay. <laughs> uh, your harvest notes, are they digital or handwritten? Both. Okay. And then the last one was the last book you read, but I think you already answered that question. Well, I can give you one more, um, another okay. really inspirational. So I gave you a, a TV show, an audio book. And so the physical book that I'm reading right now is called um, A Sand County Almanac by Aldo Leopold, um, who okay. was um, one of the United States' first environmental conservationists um, through came through his experience as uh, working for um, the National Forest Service and then um, later uh, rehabilitating his own farm in Wisconsin. It's just beautiful prose on the appreciation of nature. Wow. That sounds absolutely amazing. I have to check that out. It's good. Well, that's all the questions that I have. Do you have anything for me? No. Um, how's the weather up there in Oregon right now? It uh, Today, it is just a nice little light drizzle. It is like, <laughs> hey, it's fall. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and then, you know, it's supposed to stop raining for a couple days. And, yeah, it's we're just... Fall is going to get here super quick, and I'm kind of sad, but also kind of happy. And I, I, I don't know how I feel. I'm so conflicted. It's Saturnine. That's the beauty of fall. The geese are flying. The weather is changing, and we're going to start making some wine. So yeah, I'm, most definitely. I'm both, both like sad and excited at the same time. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's a beautiful. Well, Alice, 
Yes. Allison, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me, AJ. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you for joining me on this flavorful voyage through the world of wine on the Wine Notes podcast. I've been your host and guide, AJ Weinzettel, and it's been an absolute pleasure sharing these captivating stories with you. But alas, like the last sip of a fine vintage, our time together must end. But don't fret, my wine-loving friends. The cellar doors of the Wine Notes podcast will always remain open, waiting for you to return and explore new conversations, stories, and musings from the captivating people behind the magical world of wine. Before you go, hit that subscribe button on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, and don't forget to leave a sparkling five-star review to help spread the word. Until our glasses clink again, remember to savor life's moments and let the spirit of wine and camaraderie linger on your palate. Cheers, and as always, may your wine glass be full, your heart be light, and your journey be delightful.